The rivers run nearly as deep as the music. Today on the 2010s, we have on Molly Obama Sunwin, the bassist and leader of a free jazz ensemble taking in influences from Christian hymnals, Native American music, spiritual jazz, folk, and ever-increasing rage with a tad of hope mixed in at the edges, filtering in like cracked light. Sweet Tooth, that free jazz album we talk about today, is one of the most transcendent, politically charged, fiercely intelligent records I've heard in years. We got to talk to Molly today about it, here on the 2010s. First thing I wanted to start with is particularly on Sweet Tooth. There is a tendency with some of these songs to start with a strong harmonic lead and then kind of ushered into a more free jazz area as it goes on. I'm thinking of the first track in particular, but also Wawa Sin Ton Da. Mm -hmm. And I was just wondering if that's an expansion from jamming these tracks out or if that was something pre-thought of to go from this melodic lead to more chaos. Yeah. Um, so I'm following the tradition of um, Ornette Coleman and Don Cherry, more Ornette's composition style, I think, for a lot of these songs, where they are really, the melodies are sketches, they're a starting point, uh, more like a gathering space for the musicians, and, but they're just that, you know, and so there's no kind of limitation on what the song can turn into, um, and I think that, like, my my task as a composer is to communicate um, non-verbally and verbally, I guess, like what the ethos of this composition is, right? And and um, trust the musicians to take it where it wants to go. And so I can't take a lot of credit for like the endings of the songs, <laughs> you know, because the journey is really led by, by the band, all of us. Um, but... I mean, with Wawa Sinto Da, I think it's a little bit different because it was, we were starting in the church, you know, we were starting mm -hmm. in the Catholic church. Like, we're not talking about like Southern Baptists, like black church, like joy, right? We're talking about like active colonization in the 1600s, you know, Jesuits. And um, so that was, that's part of the composition is just putting them in that room. Uh, and uh, so, that, so that's where that went, obviously. <laughs> Well, I, yeah, I've got two thoughts on that. But the first one was you mentioned Ornette Coleman and you as a bassist and a vocalist, obviously the bassist band leader, I think most people would go to is Mingus. Mm -hmm. um, Love him. And his fiery temper and mm -hmm. all of that stuff. Yeah. Do you feel like being a bassist and a vocalist gives you a different sort of angle as a band leader as compared to maybe a saxophonist or a drummer like Art Blakey? Hmm. I'm sure it has an effect. <laughs> I um I think that um my background as a um like my folk music background has more of an imprint on on the way that I compose and that actually also ties me to Mingus because he was very adamant about blues and jazz being folk music as well. Um maybe bassists understand this. Uh, I don't know, but um yeah, that that's the kind of ethos that I think is I 
really just want to play the bass and I don't really want to like try too hard to do more than play the bass on the bass. <laughs> I think there's a lot of people across genres who are trying to play the fiddle on the bass or like try to play something else but like we have too much time on our hands and we're all way too good and it is bad for music a lot of times. <laughs> Sorry this is how I really feel. <laughs> No, I, I'm an electric bass player. I'm oh, yeah. um, I, I'm in the shortness category where I'd have to get a stool to get for <laughs> for the upright. But but I feel you on that. I like playing chords and stuff like that. But there is something, especially in jazz, of you and the conversation you have say, with the drummer being the foundation of the pieces because you are the link, the liaison between rhythm and melody. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, exactly and so if I'm gonna play the bass and like only do melodies it's not gonna work um for this album I kind of threw like a big thing at Savannah because I I wrote out you know parts to varying extents of you know sophistication uh for the horns um and I knew what my vocal parts were but I went in to our rehearsals and I was like Savannah I haven't written any drum parts or cues or anything because I want the relationship between us to like grow out of these compositions and out of the like practice of playing them together um and so that was that's something that you could hear on the album uh I think yeah uh you had mentioned your folk background and also there was a video that just got posted yesterday of you playing with a different ensemble in 2022 that's more of a rock ish it was at a festival of some sort. Um, oh, and yeah. I'm wondering for you in terms of narrative within <clears throat> albums, does being in folk, rock or jazz give you a different context within your voice of talking about issues like food soften sovereignty, colonialism, genocide? Does the music itself kind of change the way you approach those topics at all? Definitely. And thank God. Um <laughs> I yeah I mean I've been really exploring I think the capacities of the different styles I have a rock album that I'm working on right now actually and um <laughs> and I think uh like it's been done in every genre you know and I'm just trying to figure out where it feels the most natural for me um I really like writing lyrics but I have a really hard time um I have a really hard time addressing these topics head on lyrically um, because just as a music listener, I have, I don't, it's hard for me to engage with that for some reason. Um, you know, some people pull it off really well and I don't know if as a writer I do or as a listener, I crave that. Um, but I did find with Sweet Tooth that it was like a much more natural way for me to engage with these topics, like just through sound and through melodies and improvising. Um, and I think that speaks to the, the way that this style that we're playing in um, was like founded anyway, to kind of address those things in an artistic way. Well, going way back, you had talked about um, the setting of, Catholic church hymns being set into this music. And of course, there's the music video for it as well, where there are mm -hmm. two different versions of you, one preaching and another one scared in the pews mm -hmm. and then mm -hmm. underneath the church itself. I was wondering if you could dive into that video. So maybe we could dive into the song as well. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, so the video was directed by Lakota Sanborn, who's Penobscot Nation uh, member. And um, it's the church that's on my reservation um, in Odenak. And that church was burned to the ground three times uh, in the past since the 1700s. Um, and so there's like a lot of like history in that particular building, obviously. Um, and the video, um, well, I guess it, I wanted to tell the psychological story, um, of the like sort of spiritual journey of Wabanaki people that we are still engaged in, you know, um, but, um, the introduction of the church, the kind of infiltration of our traditions, our stories, um, something that happened a lot with indigenous tribes in the East, at least, I think elsewhere, but definitely in the East coast is early, um, missionaries would go into our traditional stories. They would learn our language. Um, they would learn our sort of cultural heroes, culture figures, customs, and then they would slowly kind of just insert like Jesus or like various Christian figures into them. And so like, if you have this traditional story where it's like Luscabe and his brother, you know, that's been told for thousands of years suddenly it's Guscabe and his brother and also like little Jesus you know and he's just like there all of a sudden <laughs> and like that version catches on and is told right and and so I don't know I think that the the video like I intentionally showed um the the sculpture the the wooden sculpture of Kateri who was uh the first sainted native woman um and that's kind of how they did that and she was mohawk um but you know they they start showing you the figure of like what you recognize as yourself in their christian fashion right hmm. um and so the video is kind of like yeah going back and forth between that mirror of like self and association and tradition and spiritual practice and i feel like that could be reflected in the music as well you're introducing a catholic hymn which is presenting itself as benign and peaceful mm -hmm. and calming. Right. And then as we discussed before, it kind of goes off the rails as mm -hmm. both the music video is re mm -hmm. revealing the underneath of the church. And it feels like the music is also unraveling the hymn itself. Yeah. Yeah. I did tell the band to like play a little bit out of tune, even at the beginning. Like I was like, I want it to have that, like, you know, how in horror movies, like, there's not really like a score but like something feels unsettling and if you really like listen you realize that there's like this really ugly kind of sound happening like way in the back pan to the back right <laughs> i wanted that effect yeah I, I mean it did strike me as a horror movie for sure <laughs> cool yeah lakota uh, the the director is very engaged in studying horror <laughs> um i wanted to talk about the kind of um narrative portion of it which is found sound or an old recording of an interview mm -hmm. um and if i'm correct that's talking about lake champlain champlain right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um i was interested in that because the way that i've read at least in the press and some of this music is like the connection beyond the borders that have been set by modern nations and it feels mm -hmm. like lake champlain goes through the northeast and also up to quebec 
So mm-hmm. talking about it, using it when the music is almost like using it as a landmark as something that goes beyond boundaries because water does not care where it is sectioned off. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah, Lake Champlain is obviously really historically important to our nation, but but it is one of those rare waterways that um yeah, that crosses the height of the land and crosses the the border or is crossed by the border. Um and that's why it was so important to us after after the founding of Odenac, um because Odenac was founded in the late 1600s, um but it was like one of the quickest and easiest ways to get back into our traditional territory after, you know, during during the colonization period um, after we were displaced. Can you speak a little bit more about where you found that interview and what it meant yeah. to you when you discovered it and then how you placed it in the album? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, it's uh, it's held in the Dartmouth College archives. Um, it's a, one within a series of ethnological materials um, gathered by Gordon Day in the 1950s. So it's not it's not one of the like early wax cylinder recordings. It's uh, more recent, and um, but it's a recording of like a very um, knowledgeable cultural keeper um, from our tribe who's since walked on. Um, and when I first found it, it actually had a translation next to it, which I was lucky to be able to access at that time because I didn't I'm a student of the language I'm learning it um always more and more but I wouldn't have been able to understand it fully um but I actually when I found it I wasn't really thinking about this album um I kind of realized later on that I had written the melody that would go with it um but when I first found it, I, I I just remember feeling like it was a part of our history, like this one story contained a really important part of our history. Um, and, and there's a lot of, uh, I think, ignorance around the history of my tribe in the U.S. because we're based in Canada, because we speak French, because a lot of our history is told in French. And um, Americans have a really hard time allowing their brains to cross <laughs> international boundaries <laughs> i don't know why it's just an american thing um so even like in history classes in the northeast like that history isn't taught or understood yeah do you feel connected with the northeast or montreal jazz scenes or do you feel like you're kind of out in your own place currently <laughs> i'm uh, yeah uh i don't feel connected necessarily i think that a lot of people in the jazz world as <laughs> someone my trumpet player who i i just recently started working with um allison my my touring trumpet player she was like where did you even come from <laughs> she was like you just showed up all of a sudden and i think that's kind of the effect that uh i have right now because i'm not really like involved um centrally i do have a lot of mentors and relationships that i cherish um of people in those scenes but i think the uh like free and improvised music um, community is a lot more spread out and isn't kind of the center of attention jazz scene. So a lot of these cats coming out of MSM and like really like in involved in the the New York City jazz scene, like, yeah, they definitely wouldn't have probably heard of me unless they knew like one of the two people that I kind of mentee with down there. 
the freeze jazz stuff across the states and into canada has always reminded me of the noise scene um, yeah of like tape swapping and you just never know when you're meeting somebody who's like a legend or someone who's really doing stuff because they all go to the same places because it's it's niche but it's a niche within a niche so mm -hmm. it really is something else to find mentors within there and connections within there. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And there's like a lot of these artists are like crossover artists too that are like, I don't know, I think of like uh, More Mother, right? Who's like this incredible poet, but then she also has this like avant-garde band that she does her poetry thing in, right? And it's like, like a lot of us do multiple things you know, and so we're even harder to find niche within a niche with a, a foot in another door. <laughs> well, yeah, and um, more mothers perfect because she's <laughs> such a polymath. Uh, mm -hmm. My introduction to her was through Billy Woods, um, yeah. their collaborations, and it's so obvious that that Woods had her on precisely because she is not defined by genre. Exactly. Um, and it, honestly, that's something that's really interesting to me is the modern cross collaboration between jazz scenes and hip hop scenes because it's not tribe called quest anymore it's mm -hmm. punk and free jazz and spoken word hip hop collaborating mm -hmm. it's really important i think that like yeah the the most interesting music right now is not falling within these boundaries not at all yeah yeah um i wanted to ask you you know you had spoke about your background as a vocalist within a folk group and all that stuff there are certain moments, the ending of Blood Quantum, um, parts of lineage, where there's really moments of vocal vulnerability, um, where the rest of the music will drop out and it'll be just you or harmonies with you or at the end of Blood Quantum, Quantum a larger group singing. I was wondering about that focus that you had within those recordings of making sure the free jazz and the instruments kind of all go away for a moment just to really focus on the human voice of the song mm. yeah I think that's just kind of my taste as a um like I really cherish the intimacy of vocals and a vocal harmony um and even of of group vocals that can be intimate too um but I <clears throat> the the voice is as even if you have the most powerful singer singer in the world, it's hard to compete with a free jazz band, you know? And I don't think that vocalists should compete. I think that like the, I intentionally brought in Miriam El Hajli, who's just an absolutely phenomenal folk singer, folk guitarist, like folklorist. She's, she's so in that tradition. And, um, and I knew that she wasn't gonna try to be a jazz singer. Uh, you know, and I, <laughs> which not no shame, but that's not what I wanted. And, um, and I think that was one of the most valuable like contributions to the album and to the project was having that, um, the intimacy and like the spotlight on the vocals that are, um, vulnerable. I think that's, yeah, that's a good word for it. Um, I, I think it's just kind of my attraction as someone with a folk background where like I grew up really appreciating being in like a small cramped room listening to a voice and a guitar singing a folk song, you know, typically like, yeah, like some kind of like ancient traditional songs, you know, um, usually not native songs, but like an Irish ballad, you know, or like something with, I I'm really um, deeply 
uh, interested in the kind of folk idiomatic like vocal embellishments of different traditions i think miriam does that really well i really love listening to uh like yeah like irish singers that are like really from really from ireland you know in the way they sing um and i wanted to preserve that kind of um uniqueness like that tenderness in the compositions yeah because there's kind of an internal language within folk tunes that are passed down within a lineage um because it's not just how the song is sung, what the lyrics are, but it's also clear that you learned it through an oral tradition. There's no sheet music that can teach that. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. This is not something you can learn at Berkeley. <laughs> um, so I had seen a video about you talking about the Kennebec waterways and the dams mm-hmm. there. And then we've just talked about Lake Champlain. How important is water? It feels like a background theme a little bit in your recent work writing and then this album as well. Yeah. Um, water is life. What can I say? Um, <laughs> it really is. And it's to my people, my ancestors and my people today, um, water is the thing that connects all of us territorially. Um, and so water is deeply important um diplomatically for us um and obviously to our sustenance there's a lot of ongoing kind of water battles right now to uh preserve waterways and even um in penobscot territory the penobscot nation is in a fight against the state right now because the state suddenly decided that it owned the Penobscot River right when uh, in in abrogation of the treaties that they have that say that the Penobscot people have sovereignty over the Penobscot River right so um, water privatization right now is huge in Maine um, and it's a really scary thing because as we see all of these towns going dry in the west and waterways being contaminated especially in the midwest they're looking to Maine because we have a strong aquifer, um, right? So companies like Poland Springs and all the offshoots of that um, are taking the water from Maine and really screwing up our our ecosystems there. And uh, I don't know, water is going to be like the biggest fight of the future because water privatization doesn't consider the its impact on ecosystems right so anyway i could talk all day about the environmental things but um philosophically i guess yeah i mean you can't you can't do anything without water and uh, my ancestors knew that and we used it to to get around we used it obviously as a way to find our food um yeah you were talking earlier about americans not really being able to see to you know cross-border stuff but i think yes. there's a I know Canada has huge issues with this as well, but there is a tendency to bring up old treaties with Native Americans and say, well, that's in the past, whatever. And then what you're saying is there are there are current legal battles mm-hmm. happening. It is the past is the present is the future. Mm-hmm. Like time is a flat circle. Um, <laughs> and yeah. so bringing that up within the album is interesting because I think culturally, specifically for white Americans, it's a thought of the past, the Wild West, but actually it is happening now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. And uh, I think the water struggles that are happening now are bringing up a lot of treaty uh, obligations and responsibilities that the state or the federal government committed to in the past. And now because water is becoming scarce or contaminated, 
the feds are or the state the colonial entity is encouraging us to forget about those treaties because you know we need this water or whatever right in the case of maine they're just making a bunch of money by polluting the water so they don't want to lose that money it's not even like it's like they they want to get water to more people so yeah follow the money um let's talk about blood quantum uh because it is the longest track it closes everything and it opens with a drum solo which i mm-hmm. thought was curious after most of the songs in, uh, opening with a melodic lead um where how did that start within was that within jam sessions or just a conversation ahead of time with your drummer um well for the suite it is written as a suite three movements most of the transitions came pretty easily um the final transition from fractions to blood quantum was uh hard for me to come up with um and i think that thematically having some severance or uh some kind of disjointed uh or something to kind of break it up um fit thematically i think to the content fractions going into blood quantum kind of makes sense right um and uh yeah so so we just let savannah um process her feelings about um blood purity uh (laughs) i think a lot of the content the subject material while it's sourced in like indigenous politics and indigenous community is applicable to a lot of people in my band because we all have had distinct experiences through our ancestors of colonization and similar or parallel tactics have been used on black folks on native folks on folk mixed folks you know and so yeah uh, sure. yeah yeah um and you i'd read in a different interview you had mentioned this final movement is for the living um and that feeling of how to close out that album did you know ahead of time blood quantum quantum would have to close sweet tooth yeah yeah okay I wrote cool. it that way i mean i think the the concepts immediately to any of us has us look toward the future and look toward the past you know it's a it's a policy or a concept that um isolates us from ourselves and our our families and our own communities you know uh and and so of course this policy that was set up to make us breed ourselves out of existence within a certain number of generations um is going to make us think about the future the living and the, the those who are coming right and uh i don't know i'm not answering any questions with that track i'm just directing our attention to something that's highly unjust and um psychologically very damaging and dissonant 